I'm reminded that God made each one of us unique. Um, I spend five or ten minutes trying to get the earpiece here to fit properly. I know Michael will spend five or ten minutes next week trying to get it fit properly after I ruined it. I know David and uh, Kevin and Chris know that feeling as well. Um, and it's just a reminder that God made each and every one of us unique. So, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we start. Father, this is your word. Uh, please let this, what I say here, be your words and not mine. Please show us clearly what you want us to get out of this particular passage. And uh, send us forth this week uh, learning to give generously. We ask this in your name. Amen. Several of you have more than one kid. So you may have tried this before. I'm going to set up a hypothetical situation. Little Johnny and little Susie are your kids. And you've been asking little Johnny for the past four weeks to clean his room. And it's just not getting done. Johnny's a good kid. But when it comes to room cleaning, he just has no motivation. Little Susie, on the other hand, She's your godly child, and she keeps her room clean. Uh, so what, what do you do? This is a parent technique. If you only have one kid, you can't use this. But you may have seen other parents use it, where they, they come and they start to praise little Susie for how clean her room is. It's kind of a gentle poke in the ribs at little Johnny that if you praise Susie, maybe he'll catch on that cleaning rooms is a good thing. I'm missing the first page of this. Okay, is that in the back? Ha! Thank you. I'm like, I'm in the middle of a sermon here. Uh, I think this is what Paul is doing in a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. Um, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's praising the churches in Macedonia. Um, he's been instructing the Corinthians on giving. Now he's going to use another church to show them how giving is to be done. Let's take a quick look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy in their, in their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you the, this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, 
by his poverty might become rich. One of the first things they teach you in seminary is that context matters. So we're going to put this into the context uh, where Paul is writing. Uh, why does context matter? Uh, there's this thing called bibliomancy, which is sort of like using uh, God's magic to guide your life, where you just kind of open the Bible to a page and point to a verse, and you say, well, that's God's message to me. I will note that that is not scriptural. And there is an example in a, uh, in this case, it's Elizabeth Toker's book, Humorous Anecdotes, collected from a Methodist minister. I don't normally think of Methodist ministers as funny, but apparently some of them are. Um, and and it, it goes like this. A man was dissatisfied with his life and decided to consult the Bible for guidance. Uh, closing his eyes, he flipped the book open and pointed to a spot on the page. Opening his eyes, he read the verse under his finger. It was Matthew 27, 5, the second half. Anybody know what that is? If you've heard the joke, that's right. If you, it's, it's then Judas went away and hanged himself. He was obviously not satisfied with this particular verse, so he opened his Bible at random and uh, to, to see if he could get further guidance from God, and he ended up at Luke 10, 37, the second half, which says, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. <laughs> Obviously, he's getting this wrong, so he's going to give it one more try. Opens his Bible, and he ends up at John 13, 27, where the scripture says, what you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> Obviously, context matters. I do not believe this is the message that God was delivering to him. I do not know if he actually implemented what he thought God was telling him or not. I hope not. So let's look at what Paul says um, in this section of Scripture. Um, just before this section of Scripture, Paul's discussing his struggles in Macedonia. The joy he felt observing how the Corinthian church received Titus. Um, so chapter 8 starts with this, this giving stuff and it just seems completely unconnected to what went before it. So the context in that aspect doesn't really help us. Um, we're going to look a little bit later at what follows it to put it in context. But um, and we'll also see why Paul did a sudden change in topic right here. But first we want to look a little bit at historical context. Um, the churches in Macedonia uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea probably, they were very poor cities. Um, they were Roman cities. They were known for various things. Wealth was not one of them. The church at Corinth, on the other hand, was a very rich city. It sat on a, what's that word, isthmus? It sat on a little peninsula of land. And basically, if you landed on one side, unloaded your ship, transported it across this little spit of land, loaded another ship, you saved 200 miles of sailing through some of the most hazardous waters in the area. So, and of course, Corinth charged a fee for that service. So they were a very wealthy city. Um, they were also, it looks like from uh, some of Paul's other writings, um, one of the first churches to volunteer to take up a collection for the Jewish churches, the churches primarily in Jerusalem. Um, 
Well, why did the church in Jerusalem even need an offering? I mean, wasn't Jerusalem a fairly good, wealthy city? There's several things that went on in Jerusalem at that time. Around the year 40, there was a drought, resulting in a famine. So food was very expensive. A lot of people in Jerusalem couldn't, didn't have enough to buy food. Um, there is some theory that uh, if you read the very, very early church, they had everything in common. They shared everything. People that were rich gave to the church exceedingly. People that were poor gave to the church exceedingly, partly because they expected Christ to come back any day now. If Christ is coming back tomorrow, why do I need money? So one possible reason is that they had basically given all their money thinking that Christ was coming back, and now they had nothing left. And so the uh, Gentile churches were helping. Another theory is that the Jews were very, very concerned that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was stealing the church of Jesus Christ, that the Gentiles would go off on their own way and the Jews would be left on their own without help. And so the Gentile churches that Paul was, was preaching at were encouraged to give to the church in Jerusalem as a sign of unity. In Jesus, there is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is only a Christ follower. And so part of that offering was to prove that, or to show that. Uh, so let's go back to my example in little Johnny and little Susie. If it's true, if I'm going to use little Susie as an example, then I have to have told Johnny at least once or twice to clean his room. If I've never told Johnny to clean his room, Praising Susie for cleaning her room might have an effect, but Johnny's less likely to take the hint. So has Paul ever discussed giving with the Corinthians? Well, we said that, that Paul, uh, that probably they were one of the first churches to step forward in giving to the, the Jerusalem church. Um, but in 1 Corinthians, he writes... And that is in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collect collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable, I should go also, they will accompany me. This is the passage that we go to to, to um, establish a weekly collection like we do at the back of the church. This is also one of the passages we go to on how you handle God's money in the collection in that we don't ever leave it with one person. We try to always have two-person accountability. So It seems like the Corinthians made a commitment early on to support the Jerusalem church. And in a prior letter, prior to 1 Corinthians, they may have come and just said, hey, uh, I know we made this promise, but we're having problems collecting up the money. Can you tell us some of the mechanics of how to do it? And so Paul had given them the mechanics for collecting their uh, donation to the Jerusalem church. So he had told them before, they, they, they had been told that they needed to, to follow through on this collection. So we've got Paul telling the Corinthians 
that they need to give and that they need to give generously and apparently in 2 Corinthians they need to be told again. We've scheduled um, some prayer time outside of the old hardware store. We'd like maybe some of you to stop there on the way home. Um, sometime maybe after teardown, as we said, it's on West Seattle and Sela. It might only be five minutes of prayer, but we want everybody to be part of um, the eventual destination, property, location of the River Church. Now what did I just do? I just did what Paul did. In chapter 7, he was on a different topic. In chapter 8, he suddenly says, oh, I want to talk to you about giving. Some of you may have been resting your eyes. I do that sometimes, I admit. Um, you know, some of you may have been just listening halfway, but then you said, well, what? where did he get this hardware story? He's in the middle of a, of a talk on giving. And there's... Two things the commentaries say. A few of the commentaries say, oh, well, this might be another letter that's inserted right in the middle of 2 Corinthians. Uh, most of the commentaries, though, say, no, this is exactly what I just did. Paul's trying to get their attention. He's trying to drive home the fact that this new topic is important. And he does that by just suddenly changing the topic on them. So they say, what, what, where did that come from? In fact, we see Paul do this in many of his other letters, where he just suddenly shifts from one topic to another. And it appears to be to prove how important this topic is going to be. Now I said we would come back to context, so I want to look a little bit at what follows this passage. The rest of 8 and all of 9 deal with giving. They deal with finishing the project that he had. Uh, I don't want to dig deeply, but I will read a couple of verses. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So he's referring back to their original commitment and saying, it's time you finish the work. So now we go back. Paul is, is praising the Macedonian churches for what they did, hoping that the Corinthians catch on. Well, what, it is, what is it exactly that he's praising the Macedonian church for? Simply put, he encourages the Corinthians to give generously because that is exactly what the church, churches of Macedonia have done. Um, couple of points worth noting. Paul never says how much the Macedonian churches gave. They might have given, in today's terms, $100. Maybe $1,000. Maybe tens of thousands of dollars. Paul never says how much. Why is this? Well, because Paul is not praising the Macedonians for how much they gave. He is praising them for the heart that they gave it with. Says that they um, gave beyond their means. What does that mean exactly? We know that they gave, as many preachers would say, they gave till it hurt. Um, however, it doesn't say they gave it all. It doesn't say that they gave 
the food, the, the money that they were going to feed their families with. It doesn't say that uh, they gave themselves even further into poverty. It just says they gave more than they really could afford. Does God ever tell us to give it all? Well, money-wise, we have an example in Luke. It's a very well-known example. Luke 2, 1 through 4, or Luke 21, 1 through 4. It's the widow's offering. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. And she, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So this is an instance where someone gave it all. Everything she had to live on. And Christ praised her for that. Notice he did not praise her for the amount. He praised her for her heart. Money-wise, the rich people put in a lot more. But which did Jesus praise? The one that gave with a generous heart. Does God ask this of people today? To give it all. I think he does. He says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That sounds like all. Now, let me counterbalance that a little bit with a story out of Genesis 22. This is the sacrifice of Isaac. Just going to read a couple of verses, verses 2 and 12 and 13. And God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And in 12 and 13, he does this. And God tells him, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Did God demand of Abraham his all? Well, what promise had God made Abraham? He promised to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the skies or the sand on the beach. And now he's come and Abraham has one son and God has said to sacrifice him on the altar. How do you get descendants out of a dead son? So God demanded that Abraham do all. Give his all. Interestingly enough, Abraham was willing to do it. But when push came to shove, God said, I can see your heart. And I'm going to arrange for the price to be paid by somebody other than your son. It's quite a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ the way God provided a ram to replace the sacrifice of Abraham's son. And I see that a lot in God's demands of us. He demands our all. But often he collects it from himself instead of from us. Do we see people today that give their all in response to Christ's call? No. How about Chad and Miriam Pompelli, missionaries in Africa? Have they given their all? 
How about our other missionaries around the world? Have they given all? How about Billy Graham? We use Mother Teresa. Um, there are people who give their all to God. Let me see if I can state that a little differently. Sometimes God causes, calls us to show what our heart holds. We look at sometimes he asks us to give to the point of poverty. Um, says that love of money is the root of all evil. If you love money, he may well ask you to give it all away. Um, normally, he doesn't require that of us. He wants us to take care of our family. He wants us to take care of our, our church. He wants us to take care of other Christians. But normally, it's not to the point of our poverty. But don't misunderstand me. He wants us to be willing to go to the point of poverty if that's what he calls us to do. You look at the verses in our passage, the word grace is used four times. Verse 1, 6, 7, and 9. Paul actually sounds a little bit amazed by the generosity of the Macedonian church. Why is that? Well, some have, have theorized that, that Paul is just amazed that they can do this without him because he's just such a mighty preacher and without him, how could they possibly raise this kind of money? Well, if you read a lot of Paul's letters, it doesn't seem to be that way with Paul. He seems to be one of the, the most humble men around, and he doesn't think a lot of himself. He thinks a lot of what God can do through God's grace. And so it seems much more likely that in this case, Paul is standing back and just being amazed by the grace that God has given to the churches in Macedonia to be able to give generously. Who do you expect to give more, the rich or the poor? Most of us expect the rich because it's easier to give a little bit of your money than to give a lot. And yet the churches in Macedonia made a mockery of that. They gave above and beyond their means to help fellow Christians. Paul calls that God's grace. And he seems to imply that you and I cannot do that without God. That, like the Corinthians, we can promise all we want to give. But we're not doing it without God's grace. Unless God's grace abounds in us, we aren't even capable of doing that. So he was <clears throat> amazed at how God's grace showed up in the Macedonian churches in the form of giving. Here's the interesting thing to me. The Corinthians appeared to have it all together. Look at verse 7. But since you, the Corinthians, excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. 
Does this apply to the River Church? I would love to have somebody say, River Church, you are absolutely full of everything. You excel in faith. You excel in speech. You excel in knowledge. You excel in the complete earnestness and in the love we've kindled in you. You excel in all of those things. Would that be an awesome church? We may excel in some of those things. I don't, I don't know that we excel in all of them. And yet Paul here expresses a little bit of disappointment with them. Because they excel in all these things, but they haven't given generously. And he wants them to excel in that grace of God as well. In that gift from God. Because giving generously is a gift from God. I often wonder what God has called the River Church to do. That we've turned our ear away from him. And without even realizing it, we're intentionally sometimes not hearing his voice. I suspect if we had earned the accolades the Corinthian church had earned, our response would be to be puffed up and proud of ourselves. Because we like getting praise. It would be awesome to be thought of as the voice of God in Moxie. To draw in hundreds every week. New believers. I suspect we would eventually get very proud of ourselves for doing that. And that's not what God calls us to do. The point here is the Corinthians had earned these accolades. It wasn't enough to satisfy Paul. They needed to give generously as well. Note that Paul does not command the church to give generously because he doesn't want it done out of duty. He wants it done out of a godly heart. It's like James 2.8 where, where James says, Some will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Some will say, I have a heart for God. Of course I'm willing to give it all. We'll show that by giving generously. Generous giving is an outward sign of an inward condition. Does that sound familiar? We talk about that when we talk about baptism. And finally, seminary encourages you to tie the passage back to Christ. And this is a great passage to preach because Paul does that for you right there at the end. In verse 9. For you know how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you may, through his poverty, so that you may, yeah, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's think about that thought that Christ became poor. How many of you think of Christ as a poor peasant, Jewish peasant in Jerusalem and in, in Israel? Many of us do. But that probably wasn't true. Uh, the Jews had systems in place that would support itinerant preachers, kind of like people give to Billy Graham. There's verses later on where they talk about some women who support Christ's ministry. He had enough money to need a treasurer. So he probably wasn't completely in poverty. So that's obviously when he says he came, gave up and became poor, they're not talking about money. Now he may have been below average in wealth. We don't know for sure. Um, he certainly didn't care a whole lot about money. 
But it's not what he meant when he says he became poor. And he gave up his riches in heaven. I don't know, is there money in heaven? I just assume from the description, you know, the streets of gold and the, the walls with the rubies and, and all the gems in them, that if you needed money in heaven, you'd just price something out of the wall or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so that's obviously, it's not that he gave up his monetary riches to become poor. But he gave up his oneness with God. Came to earth still being God, 100% God, 100% man. But he gave up some of the privileges he went from heaven to earth, from spirit to flesh, riches to poor for our sake. So did the Corinthian church finish the project? Did they send their wealth to the church in Jerusalem? I don't know. We need a third Corinthian letter to find that out. And we've just never found that letter yet. So I think they may or may not have taken the hint from the Macedonian churches um, and their attitude. We just don't know. But what of you? Do Paul's admonishments, that little prodding in the ribs, poking in the ribs that he's doing, does that ring true in your life? Do you need to give more money, more time, more of your life to Him? I encourage you to spend uh, time in prayer talking to God this week and asking Him to show you the condition of your heart. I started this with how unique each ear was and how we have to mess with the microphone to get it to work each week. God created each one of you unique too and His definition of generous giving is going to be unique for each one of you. If he's calling you to generously give your money, there's an offering back box in the back. Technically, the Annie Armstrong offering ended at Easter. I've left those envelopes on the box because if you want to imitate the Macedonian church and give to poorer churches, that's one way to do it. Annie Armstrong offering goes to a lot of the churches in the, in the U.S., right? So... If God is calling you generously to support other churches, you can do it through that. If God is calling you to support us generally, generously, there are also offerings for this church. There are also charitable organizations, Union Gospel Mission, Loving, um, hundreds of charitable organizations, parachurch and not even related to the church, that you can give generously to if that is where God is calling you. God doesn't call all of us to give generously with our money, however. Sometimes he calls you to give generously of your time. And there are plenty of organizations around town, including this church, that can use your time. God may be calling you to go further than that, to the mission field. If he is, he calls for your all, whatever form your all is going to take. There's the North American Mission Board here in the States. There's the International Mission Board if you wanted to go outside of the States. If God is calling you to give at that level, answer his call. Talk to him this week. Find out what he is calling you to do when he says to give generously. He's looking for a heart 
that is willing to give it all to him. Each one of us can do amazing things as we figure out what he means for us when he says to give generously. I challenge each and every one of you to go out this week and give generously in the name of God following the call of God just as the Macedonian church did and as I hope the Corinthian church did after Paul poked him in the ribs once or twice. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, what does it mean for me to give generously? Teach me this week what that means. Give me a willing heart through your grace that is just able to, uh, to both clearly see your will and to, to act upon it. Uh, not because it's a duty, but because it's a pleasure to give generously in your name, Lord. Go with us this week. Help us to spend time in your word figuring out what you have to say to us. Amen.